Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm alone again in the studio today, very much missing Kata Medea. But today, I've got a conversation with economist Martin Koenigs about his new book, Capital and Time, for a new critique of neoliberal reason. I'll be joined in that interview by Whittier College professor and LARB economics and finance editor, Michelle Chihara. So without further ado, let's get to that conversation now. We're excited to have on the phone with us today, Martin Konings, who is a professor in the Department of Political Economy at the University of Sydney. He is the author of a number of important books, including The Development of American Finance, The Emotional Logic of Capitalism, What Progressives Have Missed, Neoliberalism, and his latest book, Capital and Time, for a New Critique of Neoliberal Reason. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thanks very much. I should also say that we are joined in the studio today by Michelle Chihara, the economics and finance editor of the LA Review of Books, who knows far, far, far more about economics and finance than I do, though I can balance a good checkbook. Just enough. Just enough. (laughs) All right. So, Martin, can we just start by talking about the basic premise and idea of Capital and Time? Yeah, sure. So the basic idea of the book is really to sort of look at what is wrong with the existing critique of finance that we have and that is sort of rolled out both among academics, uh, but also sort of in wider political debate and public discourse. And that is sort of this idea that there is sort of good finance, sort of, you know, finance that is neutral in its effects, that plays a sort of a useful role in, you know, basically organizing the productive economy. And then there's sort of bad finance, which is speculative. It doesn't really have a real role to play. It's exploitative. It's predatory. It's not necessarily frivolous, but it's, you know, like it's just oriented not to, you know, facilitating useful things happening, but to kind of squeezing money out of people. And the idea of the book is really to say, well, this distinction between good finance and bad speculative finance doesn't really stand up. And the book sort of develops that uh, through sort of engagement with some philosophers and some economists. And it sort of offers a sort of what I think is a fairly new interpretation of Hyman Minsky's work. And because Hyman Minsky is usually associated with that kind of critique of good and bad finance, which I think is very problematic and misleading. And it's a real misreading of his oeuvre as a whole. I think one of the things that's important to point out is that a lot of the arguments that have been made on both sides of the political aisle, at least here in the States, about financial regulation, about what went wrong before the last crisis, are based on this idea that if you just tame the bad parts of finance, that the good parts can run along without crises. And part of what your argument, Martin, is doing is pointing out how that's not really the case. Yes, that's right. I think it's at every sort of point in the 20th century, people are thinking about finance and thinking about its problems. You get this distinction and this kind of, yeah, illusion that if only we could get rid of this bubble of the bubbles of the finance that is useless, that is purely speculative, then, you know, the basic sort of finance that is oriented to in a facilitating useful things happening to facilitating production, people making things, then, you know, that could roll along smoothly. And there's actually no real evidence for that kind of separation. And the main sort of 
piece of evidence in this story is usually the period from, let's say, 1945 till the early 70s, so what is often referred to as Fordism, which was organized around mass production and mass consumption. And it is true that at that moment in time, finance did play a much smaller role in the economy than it does now. But if you look at it from a sort of a long-term historical perspective, you kind of take more of a bird's eye view then that is actually a very exceptional period that was very much a result of political forces, of, you know, a war having destroyed massive amounts of capital. It is sort of associated, and more importantly, you know, this sort of nostalgic yearning for that kind of economy is very problematic in terms of the position of women and minorities in that early post-war order. Like, there's nothing... I'm not saying that there's nothing useful in a comparison, but certainly it's very problematic to be sort of nostalgic for that kind of order. Well, so Martin, this is what makes me think a number of things that I've been reading in my very pedestrian musings through the business section of the New York Times and the Wall Street Mm -hmm. Journal is that the nostalgia thing, uh, I forget who I was reading. It was a financial op-ed about Trump's economy and nostalgia, and basically that there's this desire to go back to the 1950s and 1960s immediately post-war, but that what that misses is that, in fact, like, time changes. And that, in Mm -hmm. fact, you know, a thing that any of us who have gotten old and notice gray hairs and joints that don't work as well as they used to understands that fact, but that we seem to think that finance and especially the way that global finance tends to work, must be able to be rendered static. Is that kind of what you're saying about that time, in fact, changes the conditions under which capital and finance operates, effectively nullifying the categories of good and bad? Well, I think there's the nostalgia for the post-World War II moment is complicated and overdetermined, right? So there are a lot of reasons that people are nostalgic for the post-World War II moment, yes. and those reasons can involve gender and race and right. all not, kinds of usually other aspects not about of economics. history. Yeah. But there is an economic argument as well that says that the thing that's different between that moment and this moment is the absence of finance. And mm. part of what Martin's pointing out is absolutely that the financialization of our economy is real. That does describe a trend that has occurred. Mm-hmm. So from consumer credit to student debt to everything else, there is the increased presence of finance across the spectrum, but that that's not what makes the post-World War II moment such an exception. In fact, the Mm. breakup of big fortunes that the war brought about has more to do economically with why that moment is such a great exception in the way that economically it does create a tide that lifts many more boats. There is a bigger middle class in the United States after. And so if you're trying to blame finance for that, you're kind of barking up the wrong tree. And then the flip side of that is really that, sure, it's true that, you know, finance now, just even in quantitative terms, is sort of large in a way that it's, you know, like just size-wise, it is yeah, it is more expansive now. Right, the fire section of the economy is huge. If you do look at the post-war economy, you actually see that finance was not so much suppressed, as people like to say. It really saw the putting in place of the foundations of the economic financialized system that we have now. So the post-New Deal era is when things like mortgage financing and personal credit become normalized, become sort of kind of embedded in the day-to-day life of the average American, whereas 
Before that time, it wasn't. You know, it was something that like ordinary people could not just apply for unsecured credit. You know, mortgages were things that, you know, were just not generally available. And so when you think about the New Deal, for instance, I think a lot of people tend to sort of think of the New Deal nowadays as sort of, you know, on the model of sort of the European welfare state where people just kind of got public benefits that like made them a little bit more independent from, you know, the labor market and those kinds of things. But that's quite a misleading way of thinking about the New Deal because it ignores all those programs that really pushed finance into like a lot of that progress was bound up with pushing finance into the everyday life of the average American. And that is very much what made it such a the sort of distinctly American episode in a way. And I guess there's another point to which you just asked, and I thought it was an interesting way of phrasing it. It's true, like we're, I think in a lot of spheres of life, we're very comfortable with this idea that like times change and we shouldn't necessarily be nostalgic for, you know, some historical period that seems to have some appealing features because we know the downside of that. We know the oppressions and the, just the general lack of quality of life in the earlier in those times. But somehow, when it comes to money, actually, I don't think it's only money. It's also, you know, apparent in some of how people talk about, like, the founding fathers and people talk about the Supreme Court needing to be repopulated, that kind of thing. But, like, especially when it comes to money, people kind of lose that critical perspective. And I don't know exactly why that is, <laughs> but I think in the end, my guess is always that it has to do with the fact that we still think of money as something technical, something that is just yeah. something that needs to be managed in a expert way and that if it works well it's neutral it doesn't do anything and it's only when it's allowed to kind of go nuts when it's allowed to expand in ways that are um, you know detrimental exploitative predatory that that's sort of when you have a problem and and one of the points that my book tries to make is that that distinction doesn't hold up and it's actually like in an earlier book that I had like in the emotional logic of capitalism I actually talked about how money even as a pure object there's nothing technical about it it's a fully symbolic thing mm -hmm. you know it really just in the simplest terms money doesn't you know it's very overtly is nothing you know it does no value it's just a piece of paper on the other hand we know that it's you know we understand immediately that it's a one of the most reliable sources of social control and power that we have. And that just means that money is never neutral. It always does something. And in this book, I look at that through this sort of lens of time. You know, money is something that we work with because we don't know if there was no time, if we could predict the future, we wouldn't have any need for money. You could have a barter economy or, you know, you could do any number of you could think of any number of accounting systems that would all work well because we all know what happened and we all know what it was going to come. Well, so the idea that we can find this neutral money or this universal principle of how good finance is going to operate, and once we get that, then we can make it work that way, is another myth. The idea that money is neutral is just another story that we tell ourselves about money. Yes. The idea that money should be neutral is a story that we tell ourselves because we realize it isn't. 
And that's one of the things that I actually find so bizarre whenever we do talk about money. Like one of my favorite quotes from, you know, like my father's aphorisms is that he's like, there is no morality in the marketplace. It just is what it is. It's like, you know, you invest in this thing and you can't think about like what it actually does. I mean, that itself is a series of other questions, but he's like, the market doesn't care what it does. The market only cares if it goes up or if it goes down. And Martin, as I'm listening to you, I'm also wondering if like there's, a relationship between, I mean, obviously, you're absolutely right. I mean, and we know this from the time of Marx's capital that like currency itself is an abstract concept, right? It's the translation of certain goods mm-hmm. and performances into an abstract object, which would be the dollar bill. Well, mm-hmm. and wherever else you go, you know, paper money. Mm-hmm. It does seem to me, though, that in the past, Okay, so this is going to date myself because I still remember buying CDs from Best Buy because I was a real basic (laughs) Becky back then. (laughs) But I remember buying CDs with a physical check and before that, buying it with actual paper money. And now money seems to increasingly to me feel like it's a series of very abstract points in some account that exists somewhere else because everything is cards or I tap my phone instead of like giving a cashier anything. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if that kind of, for lack of a better word, and I'm feeling already the like the breathing down my neck of all my old grammarians, the kind Mm -hmm. of abstractification of that money into some kind of nebulous thing also Mm -hmm. makes us feel that it is the subject of forces beyond our control that can be morally nefarious or beneficial. Yeah, I think that is right. Like the okay, so the abstractification of money, I think that that is exactly what is happening. But the funny thing is that's always happened. You know, every period of time in history you look at, people are kind of feeling that money is no longer what it used to be. It used to be like, you know, gold coins. And after that, they were just, they knew that the gold coins were held in a vault in a bank somewhere, but they were using checks to sort of regulate their transactions and make their investments. And that was already a little problematic and funny. And then, you know, like, and then the gold actually disappeared from the vaults and was held in central banks and so on. So there's this constant abstractification or dematerialization of money. And I think the current electronization of money, if you will, is sort of the, I don't think it's the end point. I'm sure they'll come up with something else, but it's sort of the, for now, the fullest development of that. And you can even see it in how cash payments are increasingly suspect, right? Like if you want to do any sort of significant transactions, you can't just sort of, you know, rock up with like a bag of cash that just doesn't work. (laughs) That seems that looks like you got the cash in a suspicious way. And like, you know, you're trying to launder it. Mm -hmm. So that electronization is actually encouraged. It's promoted. It's, you know, like propelled by governments and authorities. But yeah, what it means is that money is nothing by itself. You know, it is really just only this massive web of connections, of credit connections among all of us, essentially. And that in each change around money, there's nostalgia for the previous one. But that nostalgia is often organized around other social relations where people want to believe that some other thing is what's real. And Mm. the idea that that money is more real and that's connected to a more real economy that isn't speculative is also going to have other dynamics, other social relationships built into that nostalgia. Mm. And it's not actually about whether money itself is more or less real. It's about the changing history that we've been talking about. 
Martin, do you want to, when we had talked before, we had talked about kind of the straw man, as you put it, the places where you see these arguments getting made about bad finance versus good finance. So I think we had talked about Paul Krugman, and I don't know if you call yeah, other so, examples. Yeah, so I think sort of the good finance, bad finance, good finance story, it's sort of, yeah, it's rolled out in different fora, if you will. And I always think that sort of Paul Krugman has this sort of one of the wider progressive platforms. And this is something that is, you know, a real sort of staple of his work, this idea that... Yeah, finance was okay in the 1945, early 1970s period, and now it's gone out of control. And it's actually really responsible for most of the problems that we're having right now. And you see that, so there's Krugman, who, as I said, has sort of an extremely wide platform, but then there are also other examples of sort of prominent recent interventions. So Piketty's work, for instance, is you know, it's essentially a Keynesian critique of the return of the rentier the person who lives off their investments and doesn't work for a living. And that is seen as sort of problematic. And in people like, you know, Larry Summers, for instance, his sort of ideas on secular stagnation appeal to very similar ideas. Like Summers isn't all too critical of the financial sector, but a lot of other people, I mean, for understandable or understandable for reasons that are not too hard to figure out, I imagine. But like other people working in that secular stagnation story have the same critique, have a similar critique that really holds these bubbles, the growth of finance as responsible for secular stagnation, the stagnation of wages. And that's a very superficial take on things. It sort of really ignores the politics that are embedded in the way finance is expanding. And that in practice, it's actually very hard to make that distinction between speculative and productive finance, especially because of the way in which finance has become embedded in everyday life. And I guess this story did have some plausibility until, let's say, you know, 15 years ago or so, when this critique of speculation was essentially a critique of high finance, of currency speculation, you know, hedge funds, private equity funds, irrational exuberance. It was kind of, you know, this was a time of the Asian crisis, the LTCM crisis, the dot-com bubble. And so you can kind of see that this distinction between speculative finance and the real economy had some intuitive plausibility there. And I can also see how even in that context, the, that, that critique also still had some sort of political value. But I think it's quite different now. And that's been really demonstrated by the subprime crisis, which was fully bound up with the way in which finance was no longer high finance, but entirely low finance. You know, like finance has become fully involved with everyday life, consumer, mortgage, student debt. And these are things that we now are actually have become quite comfortable thinking about. But that until you know a couple of decades ago still seemed quite just weren't really on people's radars, except for, you know, like if you have a mortgage or if you have student debt. But people didn't necessarily think about these as sort of macroeconomic phenomena that were worth thinking about. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Martin Koenigs, author of Capital and Time, for a new critique of neoliberal reason. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
We have Brian Phillips, author of Impossible Owls, back in the studio to recommend a book to us. Brian? I seem to hear about Rebecca West everywhere I go these days, but I seldom hear about Rebecca West's brilliant novel, The Fountain Overflows. This is an autobiographical, semi-autobiographical novel about a family of musically talented and precocious kids in early 20th century England and the difficult and painful and in many ways beautiful relationship of their parents. It's a novel whose writing style is unlike anything I've read before or since. The sentences seem to kind of flow out of nowhere and flow into nowhere and flow into one another. And it's it's so full of life and so strange. It's also the book I've read probably in the last four years that has has made me feel the, the most kind of strong emotion on every page. I'm not I'm not always a great weeper in books, but this book this book really made me sob and it's a lovely and unusual novel that deserves to be more widely read than it is. The Fountain Overflows. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. My pleasure. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Martin Koenigs, author of Capital and Time, for a new critique of neoliberal reason. So just to be clear, it's not that there isn't a politics and an ethics that can be criticized in finance. It's that the idea that you can separate out a rational system from that politics that can exist over there apart from us is is not possible. Do you see the distinction I'm trying to make? Because I want to make clear that you're not saying, oh, the the high financiers that Krugman wants to criticize, Mm -hmm. it's not that they are not criticizable. They can, in fact, be criticized, and we should criticize them. <laughs> there is an ethics in what's happening in the economy, mm-hmm. but to say that if we just get the bad apples under control, if we just tame this bad corner of finance, then the good economy can go on as planned. That's what's problematic. Yes, that's right. Yeah, like I do have this problem where I get so invested in this sort of critique of this idea of good finance versus bad finance that people sort of end up assuming that I'm actually um, sort of, you know, a real um, advocate for the status quo or, you know, like sort of the um, gung-ho neoliberal, which is, uh, yeah, which, which does occasionally happen. But yeah, absolutely. I think that the the, the sort of the politics of this project are very much to push towards a new kind of politics that will have some more traction. And I think that is necessary because the kind of the politics of good finance, bad finance are they're um, unpredictable and they're ambiguous and they're very, um, there is not a clear politics that comes out of it. And you can see that in the kind of political movements that take up this kind of critique. It's both on the left and both and, and on the right. Uh, for every, you know, well-intentioned, politically moderate, you know, middle-of-the-road critique that says that we need to sort of embed finance and make it productive again, there is also a... Um, 
you know, a, a much scarier right wing um, critique that really uh, wants to go back to sort of Jacksonian times and, uh, you know, sees uh, a country of sort of virtuous farmers supported by uh, local banks uh, who run their own sort of little kingdoms. So there is a certain, and I think this was sort of became really, um, I mean, Trump hasn't really been very critical of the banks, but there is a real connection, a very organic connection between the kind of, between Trump style populism and that kind of critique of banks. And that goes back quite far. Like the critique of high finance is not something that the left has ever been able to monopolize and it never will. It was, uh, it has been at the core of any number of very scary movements. You know, the, 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 the rise of national socialism in Germany very prominently involved a critique of high finance, of unproductive finance, of people exploiting and playing with money. And this, of course, had a very strong sort of anti-Semitic overtone as well. So, you know, and clearly you have to sort of, you know, I, I don't see those particular connotations in the current moment, but I do think there's inherent sort of instability about this political critique. So my book is really to sort of, you know, trying to point out that, you know, this, this idea that you can easily separate the good apples from the bad apples and that you can sort of isolate the good features from the bad and sort of, you know, do this kind of cherry picking. It's just an inherently flawed. And once you start thinking about the fact that finance has always been speculative to some extent, though, you know, this is just something that is a feature you can't really suppress. Like, right, it's how investment works. Like you're betting on the fact that something will do really well and sometimes it doesn't, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, exactly. And, and, one, thing, and, and one thing that you see in financial history is that central banks and regulators have always needed to deal with the fact that sometimes these bets go wrong. And very often it's just like, well, that's too bad for the, whoever made it, whoever made that bet. But also, and increasingly often, sometimes the uh, institutions or the people who made those bets are so important to the functioning of the overall system that they become too big to fill, that they, you know, at any cost need to be kept afloat. Uh, they've taken so many hostages, as it were, that they need to be that they have become untouchable to some extent. So too big to fill is also, you know, something that has been rolled into this story about good and bad finance. Uh, you know, we, the idea is now that we can prevent future crises and prevent the need for too big to fill again, which is completely illusory. You can already see that there are, you know, developments now that will at some point, and it's un entirely unpredictable uh, when that will be, but that at, that at some point will generate a new crisis and, you know, new bailouts will have to be organized. Uh, this is very predictable. So that, that feature is really baked into the system. It's not something that you can sort of pretend is kind of separate from that. Yeah, that's super helpful um, to to hear you walk through it like that. I'm also wondering, you know, a lot of people my age, I think I'm like the, what is it, like the oldest living millennial or something. I'm like right, right on the, right on the, on the cusp, right, right on the cusp of that, of that like generation. 
And um, I have noticed that that millennial generation has a very interesting relationship, which I didn't realize that this was going to be a show about my father. But uh, what my dad sees as my generation's like real skittishness about the market. And part of that comes from the fact that, and this is anecdotal, but I, I know I've seen reporting on this in terms of uh, kind of adnitudinal de- demographics in in millennials and, and younger generations, is that they effectively feel that the market and investment and all of these kind of finance that you're talking about is a shell game. That effectively yeah. there's like a cabal of people, and I know that that itself is part of like a longer weird history of like how we talk about these things, but that there's yeah. like a group of people that are kind of like insider traders or they actually know what's going on and they're the ones that stand to benefit and everybody else, your boat may get lifted up or yeah. it may sink. You have absolutely zero way to act to quote unquote like actually read what's going on. That, so I'm wondering how that kind of generational anxiety encounters the kind of uh, social misperception of good versus bad finance that you're talking about in the book. Mm, that's a really interesting question, actually. And I've been thinking about similar things, and it's, it's a very complicated question also. Like, so, so basically, I think what is being perceived there is very real. I think it all, you know, like clearly there is a politics about finance and there's power involved and relations of control that systematically, you know, make the outcomes, create outcomes that are in favor of some rather than others. So, but the key thing to realize there is that, that it, it is systematic. It is baked into the pie, into the financial pie. It, you know, it is very much part of the, the logic itself. So, the perception is very real. I think everything depends on how you frame that. And that, mm. the, you know, and there it's sort of the theoretical or the academic or the conceptual dimension is a bit indispensable because you do need to think about like, well, you can't, you should resist the temptation to analyze that in the mo in what may feel like the most obvious or sort of readily available way, which is that, yeah. you know, there are people, there are discrete individuals that out there sort of who are abusing the system. And the funny thing, that is also happening. It's just not that interesting. You know, like that is really just a symptom. It's, it's just a, it's a superficial expression of something that goes far deeper. Mm. So there are tons of bad apples out there too. But again, like, you know, that is just um, an expression of something that goes much deeper. And the key thing there is it really has to do with the sort of too big to fail logic that I um, referred to earlier. So what happens in financial markets is that we, or the way we think about financial markets is that you have these prices every 10 years or every seven years or whatever. And that sort of is what occasions bailouts. But in fact, what you see in financial markets is that, you know, this logic of bailout, it's a pretty routine kind of thing. There are all sorts of ways that as soon as instability or volatility emerges, the regulators and authorities can shift liquidity away from toward large financial institutions who need it in order to sort of stay in the game longer. So there is a Volatility is usually managed by uh, risk shifting, uh, by um, shifting away risk from large institutions to the margins of the system. So that every time there is a sort of a challenge to the integrity of the system, 
it is mostly the the adjustment burden is really mostly shouldered by the people who are already struggling rather than those financial institutions and liquidity plays a key role here and that is part in part why my book is called capital and time because liquidity is really a way to give somebody a longer lease on life you may not be able to sort of pay your debts right now but as long as you can keep up the payments on your debt until a later point in time you can you, know, you can stay in the market and that is a luxury that those large financial institutions have and that very few ordinary people let alone poor people have like poor people who are often the ones who are on you know for very small amounts of debt they'll be under extremely tight liquidity constraints they'll you know, face draconian fines fines if they can't meet you know small payments and small loans. Whereas large financial financial institutions can basically postpone those uh, commitments indefinitely, and that really means that they have a certain degree of leeway that not, none of us have, and that they can afford to speculate in ways that we can because they can expect to be bailed out they can they they can expect to be shielded from the consequences of their actions even if they can still also expect to benefit from the profits if if their bets do work out talking about liquidity and poor people i think it's important to point out that what we're saying here is there is a political choice that we've made as a society that denies liquidity or the ability to get by from day to day to the poor and shifts the risk from the wealthy to the poor. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the argument that you cited with your dad, mm-hmm. the idea that the market is going to do this thing, that argument is the what we would call neoliberal rationality, the idea that this is whatever money you have is is the technical outcome of some investment of human capital in your life mm-hmm. and that it's just because it is part of this technical thing that's happened. That's not true, right? There's a political choice behind deciding that the banks get to have liquidity and the poor don't. And that's a social choice that's been made that you can discuss as a social choice, not as the um, neutral outcome of some kind of system out there. And so I think if you read something like Coming Up Short uh, by Jennifer De Silva, I don't know if you know that book, Martin, but it's about millennials and how they are they don't feel like adults because they can't access the things in the market that we were the trappings of adulthood for their parents generation mm-hmm. and so they are i think both more if you look at occupy you had a lot of young people who really knew a lot about the markets who were starting to talk about financial regulation in a new way um and felt kind of entitled to talk about that partly because the markets had not paid off with the promises of adulthood that they had been shown for a previous generation. So there's a lot of, I think, internalization of that rationality where a lot of young people feel like it's their fault that they can't Mm -hmm. get a job, buy a house, get married, do the things that they think being an adult means. But there's also a kind of turn against that rationality. Wait a Mm -hmm. second. Absolutely. This isn't, this. let's criticize the banks because they shouldn't have shifted the risk to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's actually a very interesting sort of development right now. And the way I think about it is a little bit in terms of, um, you know, especially when you think about sort of the critique of speculation, you know, we 
One thing we forget is that uh, sometimes speculation is extremely banal. Uh, you know, we tend to think of it in terms of like, you know, adventurous bets uh, that can pay off or not. But yeah, as I just said, like most of the time, it's just about, uh, or a lot of the time, it's just about risk shifting, bailouts, uh, it's making loans that are, you know, have almost like a guaranteed payoff. Um, so if you focus too much on that critique on speculation and predatory finance, you kind of really miss, you know, elements that are very, uh, the, that in some ways the opposite of what we associate with risk taking. Um, so you think about the student of uh, the growth of student debt, for instance, and you know, the, the, the growth of all kinds of precarious forms of payday lending. Um, you know, th those are extremely speculative in one sense, you know, they basically try to get, they lend to people and they will have to recover money from people whose earning power is uncertain or sometimes even non-existent. But, you know, part of the reason is also that you know, part of the reason that it's such a profitable, profitable business is that there exists very strong enforcement mechanisms. Um, you know, like there are a lot of, there's a lot of public authority that help people that help lenders sort of recover these kinds of loans. So, you know, they can always make sure that a certain percentage of these exorbitantly expensive loans will in the end work out. And yeah. I think when you think about millennials and, you know, in, in the light of the dad story, like I think the millennials have been subject to this to um, an extent that. Previous generations have not. Like, I think the student loan crisis here is quite significant. Um, the, and I think there, so, so yeah, normally I'm not overly optimistic about sort of, you know, uh, the, 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 the near future, uh, partly, partly because of the, you know, what we just discussed, like some of these problematic things are just so deeply baked into the system that it's hard to imagine a way out. But, like one thing that I do find encouraging is that even if it doesn't immediately sort of translate into a new politics or in a new sort of um, set of strategies that you can easily execute, but there's certainly a, a, a degree of engagement with finance among millennials that uh, I haven't read, you know, like that, that is clearly absent in earlier generations, like, you know, me sort of, you know, coming of age in the 80s and 90s, like for me, finance was, public discourse around finance was entirely technocratic. For me, finance was an entirely technical thing that mm. it wouldn't even have occurred to me to think about as something that is political. Um, whereas I think that's changing. So some of my students, you know, they understand that, um there is a certain politics behind um, the inflation of home prices. They understand that the central bank, uh, the way it w manipulates its, in its interest rates, can impact that, uh, but sometimes refuses to do so because there is a certain constituency that it mm -hmm. can't afford to um, offend or injure. They have also lived through the financial crisis, of course, mm -hmm. um, and clearly seen a degree of politicization related to the way in which finance had, you know, that wasn't about high finance or currency bubbles, but like very much about people losing homes. You know, the people who had played by all the rule, uh, 
who had really tried to play by all the rules, losing homes while other people were getting bailed out. And I think that has sort of activated a, a sort of a political um, a, a political set of nerves that, yeah, they say don't necessarily immediately lead to a political program, but certainly have made people way more curious about finance than they used to be. And I think that is quite promising. And you can also see it in... Um, yeah, some of the ways in which political programs that that, that engage those points, uh, you know, whether it's sort of, you know, Bernie Sanders bringing some of those themes back mm. or, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, the way in which those programs get a kind of traction that would have been hard to imagine, like even a decade ago, I think. Um yeah. So it's it's baked into the system, but there may yet be hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, and in this late, 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 late capitalist moment, <laughs> um, we will end this conversation. Thank you so much to Martin Konings joining us um, via phone from Sydney, Australia. We've been speaking with Martin Konings about his new book, Capital and Time, for a new critique of neoliberal reason. Thank you so much for joining us, Martin. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Bo. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 